Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Um, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, um, I'm Caroline Kyung-Hong. I am an associate professor of English at Queens College. I'm also um, the director slash lead PI of the um, Queens College Anapizi Project, aka QCAP. Um, I'm also on the RE board and the symposium planning committee. Basically, too many hats. Um, but I'm really so happy to be here today, and thank you again. I want to echo Sonia's thanks um, just for coming out so early on a Friday um, at a very busy time of the year. Um, we really appreciate you being present um, and engaged with us today. Um, before I introduce our wonderful roundtable, uh, am I audible okay for everyone in the room? Thank you. Um, I just want to add and emphasize to that list of acknowledgments that Sonia made. Um, just I want to take a moment to express our deep love and gratitude for our interim executive director, Sonia Munshi. Yay, Sonia. Um, so I really want to note, as, as Sonia said, so much of what Ari has been doing has been this collective collaborative effort, but truly none of this stuff would have been possible without Sonia at the helm. Um, without her leadership, her labor, her care, um, and you know, and some of you know all the things that Ari has been doing this year that's sort of been new and experimental, right? From this symposium to the brown bag, the monthly brown bag series, um, to Ari reads, um, to the faculty development seminar that some of you are participants in this semester. Um, and some of you, just to embarrass Sonia for a minute, some of you saw from the RE newsletter that she was named. <laughs> um, she was recently featured on the city and state New York's, what is it called, Power of Diversity Asian 100 list. Um, as number 100, though, she is number one in our hearts, right? Um, but for those of you who know Sonia or have worked with Sonia for a while now, you know how much she has done and continues to do to serve our local communities um, and to help grow and support Asian American studies and critical ethnic studies um, at CUNY and beyond. So just thank you again, Sonia, for everything. We really want to really, really thank you. Okay. Back to our opening roundtable. So if you look at our program for today, you may have noted that we do have a second roundtable later this afternoon that is all about reflections um, and looking back at the histories of Asian American studies at CUNY, which is, of course, super important and vital to the work that we do, right, to access our collective institutional memory and to know where we've come from, where we've been, right, in order to know where we're headed or where we want to go. Um, but we also, um, on the planning committee, we also recognize that too often we start things like this with that conversation about the past, right, about our histories, and then we run out of time and we kind of stall there. And we never get to that next part, right, of what do we want to do next. So um, we really wanted to be intentional in flipping the script a bit and beginning today oriented toward our futures and sort of holding that as the frame for the rest of the day as well. So towards sustaining our past and present work and imagining future 
um, possibilities and collaborations. Um, so with that framing in mind, we wanted to invite um, brilliant colleagues from across CUNY, from different CUNY institutions, to help us dream, uh, dream these futures, right, by sharing from their specific positions and experiences. And we're so grateful and excited that these wonderful folks were um, available and willing to participate on this roundtable. Um, so you can read their full um, bios in the program. The QR code is up here as well. But um, let me introduce them briefly, and then I'll sit down and we can get to our questions. So we have um, Francisco Delgado, um, who is a proud Chamorro, and through his maternal grandmother, a member of the Tonawanda Band of Seneca, and he is an assistant professor of English at BMCC. Um, we have Aliyah and Rajit Singh, who is an assistant professor of Caribbean studies in the Africana Studies Department at Brooklyn College. She is the co-author of Dugla in the 21st Century, Adding to the Mix, a study of race and the mixed-race Dugla identity in the Caribbean. And then we have Sokantari Sway, who was born in a refugee camp in Thailand shortly after her parents fled Cambodia after the fall of the Khmer Rouge regime. They were sponsored to come to the U.S. and resettled in the Bronx, where she grew up. In addition to publishing a poetry collection titled Apsara in New York in 2017, her memoir archive, Put It on Record, is forthcoming this fall from Willow Books. Um, we also have Zora Saeed, whose uh, poetry and essays have been published in numerous anthologies and journals. She co-founded Upset Press, a Brooklyn-based nonprofit indie press with poet Robert Boris. Zora is a distinguished lecturer at CUNY's Macaulay Honors College. Zora couldn't be uh, with us in person today, but she did send a video with some of her um, remarks, which we'll play for you toward the end of the roundtable. Um, and then please note, um, unfortunately, Tari Ham couldn't join us today, um, but we send her our love and care. Hi, beautiful roundtablers <laughs> from this vantage point. All right, so we, I have, um, we have three questions for our opening roundtable participants, and we'll take each question at a time. So one question, three rounds, um, and each of our um, participants will take a few minutes to answer each question. Um, and then at the end, we'll have a little bit of time for the audience, um, for you all to chat with each other um, and share your thoughts as well. Um, so the first question we like to start with is about each of your origin stories. So take just a few minutes. I know we could be here all day hearing about each of your origin stories, but just a few minutes to please tell us how did you first come to the scholarly and creative work that you do? Hi, good morning. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you to Sonia and the committee for inviting me. Um, so I'll go first. Um, so <clears throat> I must say that I am a Caribbeanist. Um, my training is in gender and women's studies. But in all of my work, I seek to center the Caribbean as an epistemological space, a space of knowledge creation by Caribbean people, about Caribbean people, for Caribbean people, and of course the world. Um, so I, I must say that, you know, first. Um, but of course, coming to my work, um, and then I'll, I'll get to how it's situated in Asian American studies. But um, it's interesting. Interestingly enough, I had to um, leave the Caribbean. I was born in the Caribbean in Trinidad and Tobago. I had to leave the Caribbean to actually find the Caribbean and find myself. Um, in Trinidad and Tobago, I'm understood as a Dugla. And the Dugla is the Caribbean person of mixed African and Indian descent, and it speaks to our colonial legacies. 
right? Um, Africans and Indians brought to the Caribbean space to work on sugar plantations as enslaved and indentured laborers. And of course, that mixing, which would ultimately happen, right, producing, of course, the Douglas. And in Trinidad, I am understood, sometimes forcibly, as Douglas. Um, but then I left Trinidad at the age of 17, 18 to attend college here in New York. And I did go to Brooklyn College, where I teach um, now. And um, there are a lot of things I had to reconcile, particularly um, not just entering into the United States and, of course, New York, but this brand new system of racialization that I was not accustomed to, right? So while in Trinidad I could be understood as Douglas, in New York I was black, and I experienced blackness, and with that, of course, anti-blackness. What's interesting is that as a child, I experienced anti-blackness in Trinidad, but I didn't have the, you know, the language to describe it. It would take leaving Trinidad to very much understand that, and again, understand myself as a black body here in the U.S. And of course, today I, I define myself, I describe myself as a black Dogola Caribbean woman. And again, that understanding would not have come without me leaving the Caribbean space. And then of course, I returned. So when I returned, there was a lot more reconciliation to take place as well. And I remember um, sitting in a seminar room at the University of the West Indies with one of my friends, um, Dr. Suan Barrett. Um, we were completing our PhDs, and um, we were spending the night in the seminar room, which we were not supposed to do. And uh, I'm, of course, Douglas. <laughs> my father's of Indian descent. My great, my maternal great-great-grandmother, Bunadi, she was an indentured laborer. She came from India to Trinidad. Uh, my mother's of African descent. So I'm understood as a, you know, as a 50-50 Douglas. Suwan understood as a multiracial Douglas, Indian, African plus. Another colleague also multiracial. And I began to share my experiences of being sometimes forcibly seen as Douglas in Trinidad. You know, maybe because my hair isn't curly enough, right? And, um, but then in the U.S., I'm being understood as black, experiencing, you know, anti-blackness, blackness, you know, um, very much, you know, defining myself as black as well. So we, we began to have this conversation, and I said something like, well, maybe I'm just not mixed enough. And, you know, from there, our research, our central research question was born, right? And we, we began our work on Douglas and mixedness. Right, and not just, you know, uh, mixedness. Well, let me just rephrase, right? Much work on mixedness, it situates, of course, the global north and mixedness with whiteness. Um, but we wanted to situate, of course, mixedness that can occur in the global south, right? Um, and that's how, you know, we came to this work. It was very much, you know, I came to this work, it was very much personal. And again, I had to leave the Caribbean space to get to it. Yeah, no, I have a great origin story. It's like superhero. Um, I was born in a refugee camp in Thailand after um, my parents had um, fled Cambodia um, across the jungle and borders. And um, we were sponsored by the International Rescue Committee, and they resettled us in the Bronx, and that's where I grew up. So I'm very much uh, New York City. Um, I, don't, I don't call myself Cambodian-American. I call myself uh, a Cambodian-New Yorker because, you know, like, I would die for the city. <laughs> um, and as far as, like, how I got here, I'm a CUNY baby through and through. Um, I, I um, did both my uh, bachelor's and my master's at City College. I teach there uh, now as well. I'm currently a Ph.D. candidate in English at the Graduate Center. Um, and 
how I came to this was is pretty easy. It was, it was um, uh, thinking about my positionality as someone who was Southeast Asian and um, not really understanding what that meant. And because our diaspora had only been in this country since the late 70s as a result of uh, the, the influx of refugees because of the Vietnam War and bombing Cambodia uh, and the secret war in Laos and so forth. It really doesn't um, give us much in the way of resources and narratives outside of one that is war-based. And so um, because a lot of the Cambodians and a lot of the Southeast Asian refugees that came over were um, uh, living with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, it's not like we as, as their children had access to information about who we were, uh, why we were here, and then you know what else to, how to begin to talk about that. And so for me, it was how how to differentiate myself from East Asians because um, it seemed that we got lumped in with them when, you know, uh, there, are, um, there are communities who have been here much longer with resources, with a different kind of history, whereas we came here under duress. And so making that distinction was one very important for me. Uh, the next was, what is the story that my parents are not telling me? And so um, I, went, I, I distinctly remember being at uh, City College in the library going to the Asian Asian section and looking for Cambodian narratives and I found that most of most of the literature about Cambodians was about the Khmer Rouge um, um, about political history or Angkor Wat our famous temples and so you know immediately I saw that there was this dichotomy of how we were being uh, talked about and so you know I was like okay well let me let me explore this um, and that became like my thesis, and I ended up getting a scholarship, and you know that became like the focal point of my work, all starting from personal place. But um, but that wasn't enough for me because I didn't see enough of narratives, and and not just war and about you know coming over here. I wanted to see us like you know be in love and you know do dumb things, you know like hang out and barbecue. So. Um, I, so I actually am uh, a published writer, and so I write uh, poetry, essays, opera, libretti, um, choral pieces, and uh, I actually have a music background as well. So for me, it was just about inquiry and curiosity and using whatever means of uh, genre um, and spaces uh, to collaborate and explore. And, uh, and part of it, it was just I, I didn't want to just study. I wanted to add to the literature. And so I have, you know, sorry, little infomercial, my, my book of poetry, as well as flyers for my upcoming book, which for me is, um, I call a memoir archive because I'm attempting to create um, an archive of uh, my people's entry point here, only because if you go to the archive and look for anything Cambodian, it's all killing fields. And in fact, I went to uh, the New York Times archive and found the documents, the supporting documents for that film, of, you know, with Sidney Schoenberg and Diff Pran, the two characters with whom, for whom the um, whole narrative is based around. And um, I was like, okay, this is a starting point, but you know, what from there? And then starting to think about uh, the way that we were placed in these uh, impoverished areas along with black and Latinx communities and the kind of uh, black Asian solidarity work that really uh, needs to happen, that is starting to happen, but you know, needs to continue. And so you know, how can what I do as an academic and as a you know artistic practice come together and be useful in a variety of spaces and I'm, I also love 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 teaching I feel very passionate about that so for me it's uh, 
I'm not really sure how I managed to do all these things because I, I get a little tired. But um, but this is it. Just feels like this is my life's work to to find all the places where I can like permeate with with the information. But also like how can I take it and work it into my own practices and what I do. And how is that, like, this idea of the the refugee having to adapt and to take those things in and to make it work and to move on and not just survive but thrive? Good morning, everyone. Um, I have a whole bunch of notes because I didn't want to uh, neglect any names. Uh, So before uh, Sonia was talking about the importance of giving thanks, I want to make sure that I thank all the people who uh, in some ways factor into my own non-superhero-esque, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, origin story. Although you, you only hear about villain origin stories, I feel, these days. But um, my research, very similar to uh, my fellow panelists, um, as well as my creative work, uh, what it does is uh, right now I'm examining how indigenous Pacific communities are impacted by U.S. militarization in the region. Um, but getting away from just that singular story, uh, I want to show that joy, and I want to show how they forge kinship and belonging among, amongst one another uh, across geographies, across time. Um, and this is tied to my own family's background as a military family. Uh, my dad is a veteran. My grandfathers were veterans. Many of my uncles were veterans. It was presumed that I would, too, uh, enlist and become a veteran one day. Uh, I chose a different track. Um, my grandfathers are both Chamorro, who are the indigenous people of Micronesia, uh, or you know, in that region of the Pacific. Uh, they're from the island of Guam, more specifically. My maternal uh, grandmother is Tanawanda Band of Seneca, uh, who are the indigenous people of upstate New York. And my dad's mom is Japanese. And they all met because of the military. So my work is critical of the military as this uh, infrastructure, as this tool to build empire and displace people. Um, But at the same time, I also readily always uh, acknowledge the fact that I exist. I am here today with all of you because of uh, the military. So writing is a way for me to explore this history, explore my own identity, uh, to connect with my culture, even though I did not grow up uh, on the Tonawanda Reservation or on the island of Guam, um, and to connect with, you know, folks, uh, probably not unlike many of you, who are on, like, a similar journey of this reconnection and this celebration of culture beyond just the, uh, you know, stories of trauma that... Uh, many of our communities are associated with. Um, But I also need to admit that I came to this work through the guidance of uh, a lot of former professors. Uh, I never took a class on Asian American literature. I now teach a class on Asian American literature, which I'm very proud of. But I went to college in the early to mid-2000s. They were very hard to come by. They weren't as um, prevalent, unfortunately. Uh, So as an undergraduate, I was a creative writing major. I wrote a story called The Rise of Kid Tokyo, which was about a professional wrestler who was forced to play a stereotype in order to move on to the next level in his profession. Um, And I'm embarrassed by the story. It's not that good. Uh, But at the time, um, it put me in contact with an Asian-American professor named Heinz Insu Finkel, who uh, has published some books on his own. And he met with me outside of class and uh, suggested I research this field and my culture and other Asian Pacific cultures more deeply. Um, So he suggested a book called uh, Asian American Literature by Elaine H. Kim, which came out in the 1980s. Um, But it's great as a canonical text. It introduced me to a lot of canonical Asian American uh, literature writers like Maxine Hong Kingston, of course, 
uh, Amy Tan, uh, who I knew because, um, you know, the Joy Luck Club was so big in the early 90s, um, Louis Chu, uh, as well as Carlos Bulasan. Um, so I was, you know, reading through this book and exploring some of those writers on my own. Uh, but then at Brooklyn College, where I did my master's, I'm also a CUNY child in some ways, um, that was the first time where I read a book by an Asian-American author uh, in a class setting and to have that kind of guidance. And that book was John Okada's Nono Boy, uh, which became the subject of my MA thesis, uh, which was only made possible and uh, successfully completed uh, through the guidance of uh, Joseph Enton, who is an English department uh, faculty member. Uh, he taught the class that I read the book, and he uh, oversaw this MA thesis that eventually became um, my first academic publication. So I'm very proud of that. Uh, my first publication in academia was about No No Boy. Uh, and then at Stony Brook, where I did my PhD, uh, I took my first class exclusively devoted to Asian American literature, uh, and that was taught by Jeffrey Santa Anna, uh, who would go on to chair my dissertation, which looked at how indigenous writers and Asian American writers turned to the dystopian genre to address settler colonialism. And uh, in 2014, you know, if you said something like, oh, uh, Authors of color use dystopia to address racism. People's like, what? <laughs> now it's so passe. Everyone's saying it. But, uh, when, you know, it was kind of cool and novel at the time. But what happened was uh, I got very tired of dystopia. And uh, instead I wanted to focus on hope, which to me and to many of us, I think, is tied to community and kinship and belonging. Um, so that is really what I'm focusing on these days in both my academic as well as in my creative work. Thank you. I, I love this so much. I'm so happy right now. <laughs> and I already love how much um, joy and hope and love is emerging as a theme on this roundtable. My, my own research is on comedy and comics, so that's like straight up my, right up my alley. That's like exactly <laughs> what I, um, what I want to bring to this work as well. Um, so um, I think maybe in the interest of time and also to let you all sort of um, sit with, with this a little bit, I'm going to combine questions two and three, if that's okay. I'm just going to make that call. Um, so to think about, one, how do you see your work in relationship to Asian American studies now, in this moment, um, since you told us a little bit about your origin story? So how do you see your work in relationship to Asian American studies now? And then as we turn towards thinking about its growth, its futures at CUNY, um, what are one to two critical issues that you believe we need to center and or take up in that work? So the question is sort of, we did the past question, so now we're sort of combining the present and the future because your present work is, of course, part of our, our future <laughs> at CUNY. Um, so we'll, we'll start there. Does anyone want to start? Lilia? Yeah. Um, it's funny because I never thought my work was in relation to Asian American studies. Um, so thank you to, I think it was like Sonia, Linda, Caroline, um, those persons who had put together the Building Asian American Studies summer program in 2016. Um, I had seen this email, I was an adjunct here at BMCC, and I see this email to be a part of this year long, summer year long program, and I'm like, I want to do that, but how? <laughs> And I saw in the details that um, work on Indo-Caribbeans, um, if you're working on that, you could be included. And I'm like, well, listen, if, if, Indo if there's a space for Indo-Caribbeans, there's a space for Douglas. And if there's a space for Douglas, there's a space for me. Mm -hmm. 
and I applied and I got in and I met these wonderful people and they never let me go. <laughs> I was thinking about I was thinking about that. <laughs> and I see pretty over there as well. We're all part of this program. <laughs> and I never let them go either. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> um so yeah, like I had I remember, you know, sitting down trying to create this argument as to why the Douglas should be, you know, included, you know, and why the Douglas should be part of Asian American studies, you know, um, not just in centering the um, the South Asian diaspora, but also, you know, these double diaspora people, right, Indo-Caribbeans, and particularly mixedness, you know, in the global South, and what happens when these, you know, mixed bodies then, you know, cross borders, you know, within, you know, to the North American space, you know, um, what happens when the Douglas encounters these understandings of blackness and anti-blackness, for instance, right? Um, and I just want to, you know, I didn't um, say this before, you know, even that term Douglas, it is steeped in anti-blackness, right? It speaks to, of course, this idea of, you know, blackness, you know, diluting the purity or dissolving the purity of Indianness. That term Douglas, which comes from the Butchbury, it actually denotes son of a dog, son of a whore, bastard, right? That is where that comes from. That is my... I don't want to say that's my legacy, right? Because the connotations have very much shifted. But it is steeped in anti-blackness. And again, I remember having to think about, well, how do I apply to this program? You know, how do I situate Douglas within that work? And um, I do see, you know, my work um, as a great part of Asian American studies. Again, in centering not just Indo-Caribbeans, not just centering the South Asian diaspora, but how mixedness, you know, has occurred in the global south. And again, you know, how these mixed race people then have to reconcile, you know, blackness, anti-blackness, you know, within the United States of America. Um, in terms of um, the growth of Asian American studies, um, I think that these are issues that, you know, should be, could be at the forefront, you know, as, as well, right? Um, mixedness, understandings, again, you know, of, you know, identity, for instance, but also um, interdisciplinarity. Um, and that this semester, for the first time, I taught a class at Brooklyn College called Asian the Caribbean. And it was actually created by the director of the Caribbean Studies Program. I taught the class. Professor Pan, to my left, was excited about the class. It, it was cross-listed with American Studies. And I think, you know, even, you know, at CUNY, when, you know, where enrollment is very low, across the board, and particularly um, in my department of Africana Studies, we see cross-listing as a way to not just fill classes, but these courses then become available to, you know, great, you know, more students. So maybe seeing where our classes can be cross-listed, um, because I think Asian American Studies is very much interdisciplinary, you know, in, in that way, right? Um, and I hope to run the class again and this time cross-listed with, with history as well, for instance, because it is history. It is our history. Uh, I have a few different answers for this question. Uh, well, the second question uh, about my relationship to Asian American studies. Uh, to me, I think of it in like a three-pronged approach uh, as a teacher, as a mentor, as a writer. Um, so as a teacher, my work in Asian American studies uh, is very much tied into that Asian American literature course that I mentioned earlier. Um, and making that available to students, and um, you know, selecting texts that would speak uh, more strongly, more relevantly to their lived experiences and cultural backgrounds. And I really have to thank the uh, 
wonderful folks at the ABI seminar for making this apparent to me, the importance of that, uh, of appealing to students' backgrounds. Um, and so what I usually do at this Asian American literature class is I root it in uh, this wonderful city that we live in, New York City. And we read books like uh, Native Speaker by Chung Ray Lee um, or uh, Bharati Mukherjee's uh, Jasmine, uh, which is set in Flushing. And if anyone is in, uh, if anyone's from Flushing or lives in Flushing, uh, the narrator does have a not so favorable opinion of it. Just be advised. Uh, and uh, more recently, uh, Brown Girls by uh, Daphne uh, Andriades, uh, which is excellent, and students love that book. Um, so as a teacher, I uh, you know teach these courses, but I also in my com composition classes foreground uh, writers from Asian Pacific Islander backgrounds. So that means, uh, of course, Amy Tan's mother tongue, right? Lovely. So perfect. Uh, but also more contemporary writers like Matthew Salases, uh, who writes about how you can tell your story um, in a setting, in a space like co a college classroom that isn't maybe too amenable to you telling your story. Uh, or a writer like Jenny Zhang, who writes very wonderfully and powerfully and with a lot of humor about uh, cultural appropriation, uh, which is something that, uh, you know, Provost Wong was talking about to start our day. Um, as a mentor, I participate in a lot of different mentoring programs. I'll mention one. Uh, it's the NEMLA Job Clinic uh, Program, NEMLA standing for Northeast Modern Language Association. Um, and I find that uh, over the last five years, I am constantly partnered with uh, Asian American Studies students, or students who are studying Asian American literature. Uh, and I love that I get to, uh, in some ways, talk about my own experiences and help them navigate this, for those of us who know, uh, very treacherous <laughs> space that is the job market in academia. Um, and I take that work very seriously and I always give them my email. I meet them for coffee outside of the conference because sometimes, you know, conversations that we need to have need to happen away from everyone else at the conference. Um, and uh, lastly, and my own research, as I said before, uh, it's really, it starts with my family and my own culture and wanting to explore it and, uh, you know, make space for it. Uh, in my life every day, but also in like this, again, sometimes not too welcoming space, uh, you know, that is like the college campus. Francisco, did you want to share the one to two critical issues for the futures? Did you want to, did you want to emphasize, yeah, sorry, I, I yeah. threw a curveball. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's something that uh, Sonia actually mentioned earlier. Um, there is this really, I do a lot of stuff with Native Indigenous Studies as well, Native Indigenous Literatures. So this connection between, uh, you know, land displacement of Native peoples, Indigenous peoples in the Pacific, uh, and this, uh, you know, uh, issue of labor exploitation, right, that is very common in uh, some, uh, a lot of Asian American Studies scholarship. I think there is a link, and it shows how even though Native Indigenous Asian American peoples are often uh, racialized uh, in different ways, there is a connection there. Um, so I think uh, questions that really highlight those issues and give students a chance to explore them and give us a chance to explore them as well uh, would be something that we should definitely, uh, you know, take up in the future. So um, as far as, like, where I stand, um, I never even considered myself Asian American studies or even the humanities, and I'm actually going to a humanities fellowship luncheon right after this. Um, and then I'm coming right back. Um, <laughs> There are a lot of things I, I, I know that we were limited on time, but first I wanted to say uh, a little anecdote of how, God, this is very disconcerting. Um, about 20 years ago, I was in an Asian studies class. 
and um, we got to the section on Southeast Asia. The Vietnam War got one sentence uh, within the whole class. Um, and so, you know, forget Cambodia or anything relating to that. And I was very disturbed by that. Um, and that was 20 years ago. And now I'm sitting here in front of you <laughs> talking about Asian American studies futures, which is um, incredible to me. Um, the other thing, you were talking about Amy, uh, Amy Tan's uh, mother tongue. So in my new book, <laughs> I've, I've actually, I, I have decided, um, I think that story has been taught a lot. Yeah. And we could teach something a little contemporary. So I've actually, part of the work that I do as a writer within academia is I want to put work that will be used. I don't want to just be studying other people's work, but instead contributing to that literature. So mine is actually, um, I call it the shape of my mother's dialect. And it's about her language and literacy. And it's something that's meant to, uh, for those who are tired of mother tongue, uh, as just something, um, you know, just to borrow, to replace for a moment. And I actually um, analyze my own poetry, which I write in my mother's dialect because she speaks a very accented English. Um, there's a poem called um, uh, At Least Prostitutes Bring Home Money. And it's, you know, why you come home late in the dark, you wear the stupid big boot, no, no job where you want me, you know. And so instead I actually analyze that and how we don't even get to see the, those kind, someone like her who, uh, you know, works at a hotel and speaks in that way to see a literature that features a woman like that speaking that way and to legitimize that. So so that's the way that I work, which, which is like, what can I put out there that could also be used in the classroom? Not in my own, of course, because that's weird. But um, so, I, so that's the sort of thing that I'm doing. Um, and uh, as far as like the larger, uh, let's see, um, the larger things, um, Critical refugee studies, I think, is like really great, and what's happening right now. I, mean, it's, it, I guess it's more like California-based, but uh, you know, Yenle Spiritu, and you've got Kataria um, Om, who is terrific, like one of the first Cambodian scholars, really, with a PhD uh, in the U.S. And um, I think the way that they're situating the idea of the refugee, uh, whether it's Southeast Asian or you know, from from other parts of the world, I think that's a, a new way of thinking about our positionality in this country. So that's important. But I think also disaggregating uh, the data for Asian Americans is so important. Um, CIRAC, uh, Southeast Asian Action Resource Resource Action Center, they do so much of their work around like you know trying to uh, transform, change, uh, influence public policy. And um, what you'll notice is with like, you know, uh, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Lao, Hmong um, communities, um, we have uh, actually as, as a diaspora, our numbers for education um, uh, is much lower than even like black communities as a whole in the United States. Um, and yet, when you see a lot of like scholarships and things, you know, Asian Americans are, you know, are still left out of certain things because we get lumped in with a lot of, uh, you know, the East Asian and South Asian who come here and who are highly educated. And most of the Cambodians who came here, 90% of them, 90% uh, of artists and intellectuals were, were killed. So we have a lot of farmers and folks who were, did not have like literacy. Uh, a liter uh, language literacy here. So keeping those things in mind, you know, I'm, for me it's always about making that distinction and, and educating. Educating is such a huge part of what I do. Um, so it's not just in the classroom, but wherever I go, whether it's with the writing um, or even, you know, in a space like this. So, yeah. Thank you.
So I think um, what I'll do now is I'll play the remarks from from Zora. Good morning. My name is Zora Said. I'm a distinguished lecturer here at Macaulay Honors College at CUNY. My origin story uh, in Asian American Studies really starts at Hunter College on uh, post-9-11 era when Asian American Studies, the studies program there was under the leadership of Robert Koo. I had a great opportunity to teach Arab American literature, West Asian American literature, and film, uh, Central Asian film and literature, um, Central Asian diaspora, um, to be more um, clear. Uh, for me, the time was um, that seven-year period where I was adjuncting and um, given a lot of uh, freedom to create courses and initiate things, um, I really was able to be more, um, think more inclusively about the term Asian American. Uh, definitely post 9-11 time was very important uh, to making connections with the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, with uh, the war in Vietnam and the Korean, uh, the war in Korea. So I think that um, that uh, experience really um, teaching the diaspora and thinking through these things with my students and really uh, acknowledging and including the CUNY student body into their experiences, into the the courses that were offered, I was really able to see, or I should say, uh, I learned how to articulate a way to talk about um, my experience and the experience of the community I was interested in that I have linguistic and cultural access to and, and um, emotional access to, uh, and articulate it within the language and the critical lens of um, Asian American studies and what we scholars in the field. So for me, that was my origin story. I ended up actually not writing my dissertation on the Afghan American diaspora. Uh, I did edit, co-edit an anthology of Afghan American writing. Maybe the introduction carried the kernel or like the idea for my dissertation, but um, my path took me elsewhere to Langston Hughes in Central Asia, and I feel very much so that if I um, uh, just one minute, let me set up the screen. My research was on Langston Hughes Work. in Central Asia with uh, Central Asian writers here in this photo. Um, my research ended up being more about his friendships and relationships with the poets around him, um, Ali Tokumbayov, uh, Rafa Ghulam, uh, Shalai Kekalov. Um, but I think this, um, this uh, history of Langston Hughes, uh, informed by um, black internationalism and um, the, uh, the relationships, and I feel like much of this had a lot to do with um, my point of inquiry, the way I was reading the photographs, the way I was reading the work with Arthur Kupfer, actually. Um, the way he was, um, he photographed Central Asians for me uh, was a way, was informed a lot by my Asian American Studies background. 
So I feel like in some ways, even though this essentially during the 60s, um, this is, this kind of conversation is also important in uh, Asian American studies where we can use a framework, um, of earlier scholars, theorists, uh, but really bring in and stretch and, uh, find those points of uh, intersection, right? We have intersectionality. Um, I call it more of an entwined uh, poetic, which is the work I do. And for me, the way I was able to interact with the Hughes Archive was because um, of my own experience of the Central Asian diaspora from the particular time that Hughes had uh, come to um, Central Asia. So this is my great uncle. Uh, and this is a little bit in the chapbook that I had published through Lost and Found. Um, I spoke about having access to the key's work, being able to translate because in the diaspora we were able to preserve a particular type of language, a particular uh, type of reading and writing of the alphabet that was not uh, preserved in Georgia itself because it was every time. So, um, I want to say that for me, the future of Asian American studies is in that sense of openness, of intersections, right? Creating uh, those sort of crossover moments um, and being open to not only new immigrant groups that would identify or um, benefit from a larger community of Asian Americans or Asian American studies. Um, I think that sense of openness, especially at CUNY, would um, be essential to the kind of politics uh, we have now, right? Um, there has been a lot of work with African-American and Asian-American connections, which I think is highly valuable. In that entire field of uh, Central Asian diaspora, Central Asian-American, Uzbek-American, Kazakh-American, the whole art scene that's being built around that. So I think having access to uh, multiple layers of migration, the Arab American community, the Iranian and the Afghan American communities as well, and kind of incorporating that into the um, sort of foundational work of Asian American studies is essential to keep um, growing. Uh, Politicizing Asian American studies is important because it politicized me. When I went to Asian American Writers Workshop and interned, that's where I was able to learn, um, again, a language, a way to articulate my experience, uh, to see power dynamics and to see those connections. So uh, for me, the future of Asian American studies, that's me, uh, and I'm really grateful for this opportunity to sit and um, be part of the larger conversation. Uh, it is important to plug into multiple channels, um, multiple, being open to art. I always feel that visual art uh, and poetry in some ways works really to uh, deconstruct or fragment these uh, um, colonial discourses, so a way of seeing. Um, so I think uh, being open to the world of multimedia, art, film, of course, and uh, the different layers of new communities is really important 
um, CUNY and for Asian American Studies. Thank you all. Um, just one more round of applause for all four of our roundtable participants. Um, so we're, we're now going to transition and open it up to all of you, but not with a traditional Q&A. Ha-ha. Um, uh, so uh, bear with us. We're going to cut just a few minutes into our break time um, since it's, it's the morning. We're still fresh. We're okay, right? Um, so here what I want to do is I want to borrow from Eve Tuck's indigenous feminist approach to facilitating Q&A. Um, and I'm actually going to ask you, I'm going to set a timer in a second for five minutes for you all to talk with each other. So talk among yourselves. And then if you have questions or round uh, questions or comments um, for our roundtable um, or for all of us in this room um, to add to this conversation on the futures of Asian American studies at CUNY, we ask you to take this five minutes as you chat with each other to peer review your questions and comments. We've all been at Q&As where people ask questions and comments we wish they hadn't. Right, or wish they had checked in with someone before they'd said them out loud. Um, so um, I'll, I'll say a little bit more at the end of five minutes, but I'm going to go ahead and set the timer now. So go ahead and chat with each other for five minutes. Peer review those questions and comments. 